This Wednesday, October the 28th at 7 o'clock, Pharmacy Magazine is holding a live webcast called Project Rethink Pharmacy. Hosted by myself, Richard Thomas, along with P3 Pharmacy editor Rob Darricott, the webcast will give you the opportunity to have your say on the future of community pharmacy in the UK. So join us on a panel of leading edge community pharmacy practitioners to debate the issues and have your say on the future by registering on the Pharmacy Magazine website. Hello everyone, welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast. My name is Richard Thomas, I'm the editor of Pharmacy Magazine. And joining me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of our daily news service, Pharmacy Network News, and Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist. So last week's pod was our In Conversation with interview with Leila Hanbeck. So we've got uh, quite a bit to catch up on this week. So we'll kick off straight away with Good Week, Bad Week. So, Neil, not seen you for a while, if we discount that late night incident on the escalators at Waterloo. Who's had a good week for you? Well, I'm going to go for Andy Burnham, uh, the revolutionary COVID Che Guevara type, fantastic leader, Andy Burnham. He's standing up for the people of Greater Manchester, like, like a proper leader, shall we say, uh, fighting their corner. Uh, I think we, we're pretty much familiar with, with what happened. You know, the government offered 60 million uh, uh, originally for coronavirus support to, to the area. Uh, Burnham stood firm at 65 million. Um, it's only a five million pound difference, but still a significant one in Burnham's eyes. Um, he asked the government if it was playing poker with people's lives. Pretty came up with some pretty powerful stuff and pretty yeah, pretty stirring stuff actually. Uh, listening to him um, a couple of days ago, um, the restrictions he said would increase the levels of poverty, homelessness, and hardship. Um, the government said it couldn't offer any more on the basis that it's already offered the same level of support, uh, or certainly similar support to, to Lancashire and Merseyside and other uh, surrounding areas. Um, and to be honest, you know, it, I, I thought fair play to Andy Burnham, more than fair play, actually. Fantastic, uh, rousing speech. Um, there, there is a perception here as, as this develops across the country, not just in Greater Manchester, but, you know, that, that there's a, there's, there seems to be an unsavoury war developing between local government and central government, war, a war of words, uh, very sort of uh, unpleasant things going on. You know, I, I don't really see it that way, me personally. I don't know what you guys think, but um, I, I think, you know, local areas need to have local support. And local areas are not the same across the uh, across England, across the UK. Um, you know, each area has its different needs. Um, uh, some areas, have, as we know, have higher levels of infection, others uh, others don't. So, um, <clears throat> Mr. Jenrick, Rob's, Rob's mate, um, Robert Jenrick, the Communities Minister, uh, wrote to those, uh, wrote to 10 local council leaders uh, in Manchester trying to get them to accept the 60 million. Uh, I think there was a letter published in The Guardian yesterday, Robert Jenrick's letter. Uh, it was, seemed to be, I think The Guardian suggested it, it seemed to be a deliberate attempt to cut Burnham out of the discussions, uh, quite possibly. Um, and last night we had Sasha Lord, uh, the nighttime economic advisor for Greater Manchester, saying that uh, he has started judicial review proceedings into the government's decision to implement restrictions in the area's hospitality section without any scientific evidence. So it's all kicking off. Um, uh, people may see Burnham uh, and, and the stance that he's taken as, as mere posturing and, and, and troublemaking. I don't at all. I see it as a complete opposite. I see him as a mayor who's looking simply looking after the interests of the city, 
Um, and quite frankly, it's the government that's uh, juvenile, in a very juvenile way, quibbling over five million pounds. So for me, the hero of the week is Andy Berman. You do know this is a pharmacy podcast, do you, Neil? <laughs> well, it's a healthcare podcast. <laughs> this, this will also have an impact on, uh, on pharmacists in Greater Manchester as well, you know, in terms of, you know, if people don't have access to support in the area and, and uh, resources, and if they are homeless, if they are uh, struggling uh, with this to, to, to contain this virus or struggling with the virus, <clears throat> where's the first place they're going to go? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I, 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 I find the whole sort of it's all so depressing. I, I can't make my, make my mind up really whether that's that's you know strong leadership up there in Manchester by Mr. Burnham or or, or political you know posturing of, it, of of the worst kind. But but at the end of the day, you're right. If they're quibbling over five million pounds, it's just not worth having the the political row, is it? So uh, yeah, okay, that's uh, that's an interesting one, that Neil. Um, so Arthur, who's had a, a good week for you? Uh, well, I suppose the solicitors and brokers have had a good week. Uh, Christie and Co. Uh, announced last week that this year there's, uh, I suppose, surprisingly been an 11% increase in sales activities uh, of pharmacies, people selling pharmacies. Um, I, they said that early on in the pandemic, things were were slowed up and, you know, c- contracts took much longer to go through. But, um, but, but overall, activity is kind of sped up compared to last year. Um, so and obviously that's, you know, the, the solicitors are going to be making hay out of that. Um, I, it's, I, I wonder sort of what's behind it. Is it because a lot of the multiples Lloyds are shedding branches? Um, I, I wonder is, is, that, is that behind a lot of the activity or is it sort of independence changing hands? And um, it'd be interesting to find out a little bit more about that. Yeah, we don't know, do we? we? We need to kind of dig into that a little bit more. I mean, I've been talking to a couple of independents in the last week or, or two who were saying, well, now is absolutely the time to you know, to to purchase or, you know, to invest, kind of like slightly contrary to the general mood within pharmacy. So, um, yeah, that, that that was an... Is it make the most out of the crisis, I suppose. Yeah, you know, um, buying when the market's at the bottom and things like that, you know, possibly. I don't think the point from the story was that it is the bottom of the market. I think that, and the ones that I've seen over the last few weeks in particular have been mostly um, independents buying and, and not not buying um pharmacies that are for sale from larger multiples either but a bit of change at the bottom end i mean i, I think that i think there's a there's an opportunity if you see the future as being more personal local locally driven um pharmacy as part of wider primary care then that to me is is in itself an opportunity so um you know, I hope that I think that's part of it. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to find out as well how many you know, community pharmacists have sold up because they're sick and tired of what they're having to go through at the moment uh, because of a lack of government support. And that's the other thing as well, isn't it? Yeah, and, uh, borrowing is is quite cheap at the moment as well. So yeah, that that's an interesting one. We'll we'll keep tabs on that one. I think. Uh, Rob, who's a, a good week for you? Uh, the risk of making Neil. Uh, splutter in his coffee i'm going to say good week for the government <laughs> but it's, it's only one tiny before we get too excited it's one tiny sliver of good news go on and it's, then. and it's way too late because this would have been massively good news uh back in march or even april or maybe may or possibly june july but now we're in october and finally uh pharmacy community pharmacies can get access to ppe via the Department of Health and Social Care's PPE portal 
free of charge as it should have been months and months and months ago. So I think it's only fair since we've given them a lot of stick over the last few weeks and months to recognise that finally something works as it perhaps should. Yeah, that is really good news. Um, and hopefully the, the PPE problems of, of earlier on in the crisis, um, you know, well and truly in the past. Yeah. So, yeah, well done to the government there. Good week for me. Um, I think it's been a good week for the chair of the BMA's General Practice Committee. My namesake, Dr. Richard Vautry, who has suggested that community pharmacists should be allowed to reuse medicines uh, that have been returned to the pharmacy and opened. Um, Arthur's story as well. You know, hurrah for that. Seems such a common sense thing to do to reduce waste, doesn't it? Pharmacies get so many unopened medicines back that, that just have to be dumped. And we've been going on about it in, in the profession for years and years. There's, there's just got to be a better way. So, um, yeah, he, the doctor, uh, Dr. Vautry, he was making um, a broader point about reducing primary care's carbon footprint. Uh, and he also said that remote consultations were good for that, uh, improving access and convenience for patients. So maybe I'm less keen on on that. Uh, but he also had some interesting ideas on on tackling climate change and calling for a, a green fund for GPs and things like that. So I, I was certainly struck by the the good doctor's ideas for reducing medicines waste. So I'm going to say a good week for that rather unlikely climate change activist, Dr. Richard Vautry of the BMA. So now it's time for Bad Week. And uh, I'll start here. Now, I need to let me try and explain this, um, my nomination for Bad Week. So this time of year, chaps, right, it's often quite tense for pharmacists uh, like me because it's registration renewal time and the, the revalidation deadline is coming up fast for many of us. And, you know, we're human, we're fallible. We leave it to the last minute. So last weekend, I settled down to do mine. Couldn't log on to the to the MyGPHC flat platform wouldn't recognize my password password reset link didn't work so I, I was locked in this this dante circle of revalidation lock in hell and i was uh, getting more and more frustrated and so i did the thing that you should never do and i took to twitter uh, to express my frustration and it was pissy and to the point i admit and i was a little bit embarrassed as soon as i'd done it actually but i was just so frustrated but then the extraordinary thing was my timeline lit up with dozens and dozens of pharmacists, all with similar problems, all pulling their hair out. It literally went on all day. So, right, my Twitter feed, admittedly, is not a scientific sample, uh, but there does seem to be an awful lot of exasperation and, and frustration out there with the with the MyGPHC platform. It is rather clunky. Lots of people seem to have problems with it. I don't know whether it's a Mac issue or it's a browser issue or, or what really, but you know, it's not particularly user-friendly. But another thing that people are uncomfortable with, and this came, kind of came out in discussions, uh, is that this year, right, you only have to submit a single reflective account because of COVID, and that's great, obviously, but you still have to tick the box to say that you've had a peer discussion, um, even when you haven't, because you're not required to this year. So you actually have to lie to the regulator, and that's the official advice from the regulator, by the way. It's just most odd, and it, it does feel wrong when you have to make all those declarations. Um, so as one person remarks... Um, no wonder the GPHC has so much difficulty uh, in setting up an online registration exam this year and it, it's basic IT and it's basic revalidation 
platform is so poor. So I know it's probably partly my incompetence, but uh, surely the GPHC does need to look at its platform, uh, revalidation platform, because it's driving many of us nuts. So um, I'm going to share my bad week between me uh, and between the GPHC over my revalidation woes. Um, ro- I think this week, I think this weekly session counts as peer review, doesn't it, Richard? Does this not count? You bear, you bear in your soul to the rest of us about your trials and tribulations. I have to say, fair play to you for being such a swat for doing it so early. I mean, what's the matter with the 31st of October, for goodness sake? But you thing is, Rob, that's a good point, though, because you've got to build in that safety blanket of a little bit of time because you won't get into the blimmin' system on the 31st of October and then, you, then you'll be in remediation and that's no good. And uh, you know what that's like, don't you, Prof? We've all, we've all been there. We've all been there, Richard. So, yeah, Rob, um, uh, who's had a bad week for you then? Well, I, actually, I think it... I don't think we talked about this before, but I think it's been it's been an absolute... It's getting worse. Absolute horror show for Test and Trace. Do you remember our world-beating, our world-beating system that we were going to just knock spots off everybody else? And this week, uh, its figures are down to... Uh, fifth, below 60%. Uh, now, on the one hand, of course, as we find more t- cases, we all know that cases are rising, it's going to be harder for a system like this to to cope. Um, but the, the, the figures from the national system, you know, compare very, very poorly with cases handled by local health protection teams, 94.8% of contacts. And in a way, this this whole um, this whole challenging system around te- test and trace kind of leads back a little bit to to Neil's point about Andy Burnham standing up for standing up for localities. You know, the, at the heart of some of that challenge is is this this dynamic between national government and local government. And there have been plenty of commentators around who said, "Why on earth are we spending a fortune on a on a privately run test and trace system?" And ignoring the the expertise that exists in in local uh, local government, um, who you know historically have had responsibility for doing this kind of thing in admittedly much much smaller kind of outbreaks and things, um, and and so he, here's another example I think of of where a national system is is struggling and is badly struggling, and these figures are going to get worse because the the caseload is going up and up and up and up and up. Um, so whether it'll it'll make people pause and think slightly differently about it, I don't know. Um, but bad week, test and trace, and um, I don't think we should mention it every week because it's only going to get it's only going to go downhill from here until until we turn the corner. It's, it's, it's worth mentioning though. It's worth mentioning Rob though, isn't it? I mean, but I mean, but there's, there's more to this now, isn't there? Because uh, you know they're now going to well, so we're led to believe reports are suggesting that they're going to now bring in untrained staff to carry out clinical assessments of patients. Um, infected with the virus, as, a, as you know, test and trace is now bringing in these untrained workers um, as, as, as we go through the second spike. Um, I think it was in the Independent, wasn't it? I think they had uh, there were leaked emails obtained by the Independent that showed uh, staff from outsourcing firms Serco and, and Citadel who have no clinical training will be now working alongside nurses and clinical staff to help assess and and cont- contract trace approximately to twenty thousand cases a day. So this is getting worse. Not only is it bad enough anyway, with the fact it's a faulty system, it's now becoming potentially a, a dangerous system, isn't it? If these if these reports are true. Well, I think I know, um, Sky News is currently running a story about this about 
leaked emails coming out of the system from uh, test and trace bosses admitting that the latest surge is posing an immediate challenge to the capacity of the test and trace system. Well, at least at least they now know what the rest of us know. Yeah. The I wouldn't be surprised if the next Booker Prize winning novel is written by Circa. They seem to just extend their tentacles into everything. Yeah, and uh, uh, Delight involved as well, I think, with the with the the lighthouse, um, the lighthouse labs, and the government are just not not taking this on board about the regional testing, are they, Rob? I think are they not going to invest like a whole load of money? I mean, billions of pounds in in expanding the uh, the lighthouse the lighthouse you know laboratory yeah. capacity. So, oh, um, yeah, I have I haven't even mentioned the bit about the testing because that that uh, that was supposed to be all operating within a twenty four hour time frame by the end of June. According to um, according to the the country's glorious leader, um, and clearly that's not working either. And in fact, I've got a story coming up in the next issue of somebody telling their own personal tale about this, which which shows, which again, you know, relates in both of those cases that the test the test result was not received within twenty four hours. It was it was closer to forty eight hours. I mean, it, you know, whether in the overall scheme of things that's a good thing or not. I mean, clearly, if people are waiting five days, that's ridiculous. Um, but we keep getting promised that things will be, you know, amazing. And yet, you know, I, I think we have to take with a pinch of salt anybody promising anything. You know, I was always told that you you kind of over, you under promise and over deliver rather than over promise and under deliver. But we seem to be stuck in a, in a cycle of doing the latter rather than the former. We've actually got a profile uh, of a pharmacist working in, a, in NHS test entries in our October issue. So you get to to learn about the other side there which uh, was a fascinating read actually arthur what about you uh well it was another bad quarter for boots unfortunately uh they published their financials last week for uh for the for their more fourth quarter of their financial year and they had some i think pres- prescriptions were uh, nhs prescriptions were a little bit up but um but compared to the same period last year, non-pharmacy sales were massively down. I think twenty nine percent or something like that. Um, so very kind of un- unsettling performance, I'm sure for 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 Walgreens executives. Um, they said that they're having they're seeing some improvement from marketing activities, and um, and their online business is still booming. Boots.com is continues to to go up and up, but the performance in their stores, uh. Seem in footfall seems to be down. Non pharmacy sales seems to seem to be massively down. So there's a big struggle there. Um, they said around the time they published their last figures, they said they were you know, uh, getting rid of about four thousand staff, shutting around, shutting a lot of their opposition stores. But they said they, the the line is still that they're not going to be shutting any of their actual pharmacies. But with figures like this, if he, if they keep coming out quarter after quarter, you'd wonder whether that's you know. Well, whether that's going to be the case the next time that they, they come out with their figures. Yeah, Boots' uh, struggles continue, don't they, um, with those quarterly results? No no sign, like you say, Arthur, of a, an immediate turnaround there either. So um, difficult days for uh, our leading pharmacy chain. A few leaks coming out of head office as well, isn't there, at the moment? We've seen a leak about the uh, access to the toilets and one about... Um, being required to go and work in the head office um, building for certain parts of the week. 
So it doesn't look like everything's uh, rosy. No, 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 it doesn't. I didn't think there were enough. Not a sign of. Didn't think there were enough people at head head office anymore at Boots to leak. But yeah, they they are in the the press a lot at the moment, but not not always for the for the best reasons. Um, so bad week for Boots there from Arthur. Um, Neil, who's had a bad week for you? It's been a bad week for Purdue Pharma. Um, actually, yeah, the makers of uh, OxyContin painkillers. Um, they reached a settlement, uh, I think it was this, this week, yesterday. Um, they reached a settlement uh, with the Justice Department of six point, just over £6 billion, $8 billion, uh, and agreed to plead guilty to the uh, federal criminal charges over the role it played in, the, um, in America's opioid crisis, um, supplying drugs without legitimate medical purpose. Um, and they're going to plead guilty to these charges. Uh, it's it, a pretty, pretty big um, uh, sum to pay. Um, I, I think in actuality, it looks like it could be a, a, only the tip of the iceberg if, if the reports are, are to, be, to be believed. Um, CNN were reporting um, uh, just very recently that uh, the company itself, Purdue, will, will actually close down um, and in its place, uh, the assets will be used to create a new, what they describe as a public benefit company that's controlled by a trust or similar entity. Um, that will continue to produce painkillers such as OxyContin, but also drugs that deal with opioid o- overdose. Um, so it'll have, it will be a, this new entity we're led to believe will have, will have a, 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 moral, a socially moral um, a base and it, will, and it won't be there just to uh, generate profits. Um, the opioid crisis in America, I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible situation in, all con- in a lot of countries, but in, in America particularly, uh, it's claimed over 400,000 American lives since 1999. Um, and uh, the Justice Department officials are looking to bring criminal charges um, to the Sackler family, uh, the founders of Purdue Pharma, um, for what yeah, it seems to have been an, an encouragement of the over-prescription of opioids. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty uh, unseemly affair, but I think um, it has not been a good week for um, Purdue Pharma. Yeah, and Neil, am I right in saying that um, this this settlement, you know, it, it's... It doesn't finish it because aren't the um, the states prosecutors and families you know are still pursuing them and they they want a lot more, don't they? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is this as I said, this could be the start of things. Really, I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the Sackler family themselves they withdrew more than ten million, uh, sorry, ten billion dollars uh, from 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 the company, and they put the money into family trusts. Um, as the company faced legal challenges um, related to its uh, to its role in the in the opioid epidemic, um, and I think that um, it, uh, a spokesperson for the Sackler family defended those withdrawals. Of course, I suppose that they would, um, but nevertheless, I think that you'll, you'll probably see in the, in the coming uh, weeks and months, perhaps it could be a lengthy uh, uh, affair. You'll see um, uh, legal suits, um, criminal. We're talking about criminal. Uh, suits here being um, filed at the, at members of the Sackler family and and former executives of the company as well. So this is um, this is this, this saga is just really beginning. I think might be a good time to plug if you haven't seen it. I'm sure that all um, listeners to this podcast who are Netflix subscribers have watched this mini series called The Pharmacist. But if you want to see just how just you know the background to this, um, that four part series uh, follows a kind of, uh, New Orleans pharmacist. I think his name's. Dan Schneider, if memory serves me right. Yeah, I think you're right. He was investigating his son's his son's death. His son was an addict of, of, of one form or another. But you know, as that as that uh, that series goes on, you you get to see expose the you know what Purdue Farm were up to, the corporate sales tactics, 
how they were promoting um, this OxyContin in particular. Um, and it's just, it's heartbreaking to watch in some respects, but fair play to the pharmacist for his doggy determination. I mean, at one point he gets in the way of the police and he's doing his own investigations, but a uh, phenomenal, phenomenal job. Well worth, well worth investing some time. Yeah, yes, definitely. And I, you know, this, this is a long running saga. It, it's clearly got, you know, a long way still to run, but, you know, I think nearly half a million I think it's that I'm right in saying half a million Americans have have died from um, opioid overuse or over over prescription of uh, of opioids since you know the turn of the century. So yes, uh, it's a very very difficult and sad sad situation actually. Yeah. And I just want to give a little uh, plug, I suppose, to one of our uh, you know one of our award winners, Independent Pharmacy Award winners, Shane Battier. Yeah, who I'm sure we all know, uh, familiar with, who's doing some really really important, impressive work in this area, has been doing so for quite some time. Um, and um, she's really raising the profile of, of the work of community pharmacists in, in this particular area, opioid, uh, opioid dependence. So, yes, and, yeah. and we have a you know significant opioid dependency problem in the UK as well. So yeah, quite right, Neil. Thanks for, thanks for reminding us about that. Um, really good, really good nomination. Bad week for Purdue Pharma. So now it's time for any other business. Um, well, I've got something. I've got two things, actually. First, rather a sad thing. Uh, this week was the 54th anniversary of the Abavan disaster, which always chimes a, a very sombre chord for people from my part of the world uh, in South Wales and, of course, further afield. Uh, but also this morning, now I came across a brilliant article um, having my coffee and toast this morning in the BMJ, and I've stuck the link on Twitter and uh, I'd, I'd urge you and everyone to read it. Um, it's really good. The basic premise of this piece is um, the more certain someone is about COVID-19, the less you should trust them. And, and what the authors say in this piece is that everyone seems so certain about COVID and what to do about it. And it's not just the mask refuseniks or the lockdown zealots or those who say chloroquine or or even bleach is a cure. Uh, the authors make the point that it's rational people with, with scientific credentials who are making these assertive, seemingly authoritative public pronouncements on COVID, who also seem to suggest that there's no legitimate grounds for disagreeing with them. Yet, you know, the reality is all the time the evidence base is shifting, models are changing, earlier claims are, are discredited. You know, it's an area of science that's messy and murky, it's difficult. Nothing simple, nothing's clear. And so I think what the authors of the piece are basically saying that acknowledging, acknowledging um, uncertainty a little more might actually improve the debate and the science and importantly, um, start to rebuild public trust and that we should listen uh, in particular to people who acknowledge conflicting evidence on even strongly held views. I think what they're saying is every, everyone should really try and keep an open mind um, with the science about COVID. So it's a great article. It's by uh, George Davy-Smith, Michael Blastland and Marcus Munafo. It's in this week's BMJ. Um, check it out. So anyone else? Uh, Neil, have you got anyone? Yeah, I was quite um, very impressed with uh, the, the owner of the GAY nightclub in London who has launched a legal battle against the, the Department of Health and Social Care to overturn that ridiculous 10 p.m. curfew on bars and pubs and restaurants. Um, he's written to, uh, I can't, am I allowed to say his name or am I still barred from saying 
uh, that chap who runs the department. Am I allowed to? Matt, Matt Hancock. Um, he's written to Matt Hancock. Who? Who is he? Um, who? Who is I, had to, I, had, I had to. I had to. I had to force the words out there in a very uh, uncomfortable fashion. Matt Hancock. And, um, and he's saying he's, um, we're going to take legal action if, you, you know, if, if this continues. So um, I, I don't uh, – there's, there's two sides to, to this kind of um, 10 p.m. curfew argument. Now, we've heard people say that look, it, it, we should have gone straight into a, a short circuit break now, you know, a, a national lockdown, and then gradually come out with a 10 p.m. curfew. And other people are saying, well, actually, scrap the 10 p.m. curfew and just, and just you know, have it late, you know, keep things open later than 10 p.m. What, this, the 10 p.m. doesn't make any sense at all, whichever way you look at it. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm, I hope um, uh, that the, Mr., um, the owner of GAY Nightclub uh, is, is successful in his lawsuit. I, I, think, I don't know what you guys think, but I'm, um, I hope... I hope that uh, Jeremy Joseph, that's his name, the chief executive of GAY, Jeremy Joseph, and I hope he uh, succeeds. Oh, so good luck to him. definitely. Good luck to Mr. Joseph. I mean, that, that he really needs to succeed there because th- this curfew is just an absolute nonsense. Um, absolute nonsense. Arthur, any other business? Uh, what have you got? Uh, well, the silliest thing I've seen this week is obviously <laughs> the government is in this kerfuffle over whether or not it's going to give uh, children in England free school meals over the holidays um, and Marcus Rashford who is very uh, vocal before on this issue is is, is, is again weighing in um, to which uh, MP for Wickham Steve Baker has, has, has responded that Marcus Rashford is wielding his power irresponsibly he's, he's saying he tell he tells Marcus, "You have three three point four million followers to my ninety six thousand. The power is yours." <laughs> Which is bear in mind, this man Steve Baker, uh, from twenty sixteen to twenty seventeen, and a, on a subsequent occasion, he was chair of the European Research Group. Which, if there's any lobbying group that has been influential that has had the year of Theresa May and then Boris Johnson, it's the ERG. So for him to be saying, you know clean crying wolf or, or or whatever he's doing i find it so silly and disingenuous and um yeah so how mean how mean of the government again though isn't it i mean how how mean and horrible i mean i don't understand the rationale behind it as well it's the same thing we go back to the greater manchester situation you know we're quibbling over five million quid i mean how are they, it's I, because it's I labor isn't it it's labor have brought the motion they can't be seen to yeah possibly yeah yeah but i just think you know it's losing touch with human needs aren't they now i think they're just you know yeah. i'm not i'm not i'm not sure marcus rasford is going to lose no i don't think so really. not after he's got not after the mbe he was awarded that's for sure deservedly that's a good that's a good choice i, I like that a lot arthur uh, i and well done for using kerfuffle as well um, <laughs> rob uh anything else anyone what, what have you seen yes do you know do you know with, with the with the overarching um, topics of this year there are some significant achievements getting overlooked I think so I'm going to go I'm going to go to a slightly different sport I'm going to say that in any other year the achievements of of Holly Doyle on the racetracks of this country would have been front page news um, the clearly so far to date the best female jockey there has ever been um, she took Champions Day at Ascot at the weekend by storm. She won her first Group 1 race. Uh, she's had over 100 winners, I think, this season. Um, and, you know, any other year, any other date, we'd have been hearing an awful lot more about her achievements. Um, 
she's obviously going to be uh, hopefully going to be in the frame for the sport all the sporting tra- sporting awards this year but fabulous to see and um you know well done uh, i wish i'd had some money. what a great nomination what a great any other business that is rob brilliant um yeah, and, and hardly any media attention. I don't think much press coverage at all that I've seen about about her achievements. So yeah, that's because it's not a, that's because it's not a proper sport. Okay, you're right. That might be that might be edited out. Um, There's the Liverpool fan who spent most of his podcast praising an Evertonian, which I think is fair, fair play, Neil. Well done, mate. <laughs> that hurt as well. Yeah, I wouldn't have done it if been a Man United fan. So that brings us to the end of this week's pod. And my thanks, as always, to Rob, Neil and Arthur. The pod is available on the Pharmacy Magazine website and from all your usual download sites. Uh, Mark Lionett will be in the interview hot seat next week. So cheers for that. But for now, from all of us, thanks very much for listening. (laughs) 